Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today the subject is universal health care. Universal health care, sometimes called Medicare for All, would provide government-funded health care coverage for everyone. Many countries have it. We don't. The political will is just not there. Nonetheless, advocates continue to lobby for it. Joining me in studio to discuss this controversial issue are Wendell Potter, president of the Business Initiative on Health Policy and a former insurance company executive. Dr. Ed Weisbart is chair of the Missouri Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. And with us by phone is Patrick Ishmael, director of government accountability for the Show Me Institute. Thank you all so much for being with us. Great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll start with you just to clarify some terms. What is the difference between universal health care, Medicare for all, and single-payer care? They're very related terms. Universal health care just means that everybody in the country would have health care. Um, Medicare for all is a strategy to accomplish that. It says take Medicare and stop saying you can only get it when you're age 65. Instead say, gee, it's such a great program with so much success. Let's fix a few things with it, but give Medicare to everybody. And then single-payer means the same thing essentially. It just says instead of having hundreds or thousands of payers or insurance companies that complicate things, let's just have one payer. And the sensible way to do that, of course, is through Medicare. All right. So they're pretty interchangeable. Yeah. Fairly interchangeable. Wendell, why don't we have it in this country? You you mentioned it earlier. There hasn't been the political will. There's been a lot of public support for it. In fact, you're right now we're seeing uh, growing public support for that. Some recent polls have shown uh, and reliable polls that a uh, great number, a great percentage of Democrats, but also Republicans are now realizing that the government needs to play a, a, a much more substantive role and to move us toward a, a Medicare for all type of system. Uh, but it hasn't had the, the political support. We're, that is changing because now for the first time uh, in Congress, there is a Medicare for all caucus. Um, and uh, the uh, bill in the House of Representatives that um, would create uh, a system like this has more than well, has 123 sponsors right now, and that will increase significantly after the new Congress is sworn in in January. Patrick, should the government be involved? Well, I think the government is already involved in a lot of respects, and, and I think the idea that the government needs to get more substantively involved in, in the health care system kind of runs against the experience that we've had, you know, not just over the course of the last 60 or 70 years, but also over the course of the last eight or nine years. You know, keep in mind that we had a, a bit of an overhaul called the Affordable Care Act just uh, about nine years ago, and under that rubric, it, it really didn't solve the health care problems, even when you had the government step in and say, you know, we're going to mandate this kind of coverage for uh, these particular illnesses. We're going to make sure that everyone can get care. And, and yet at the end of the day, what we found was that that central role that the government was playing was not actually getting a handle on the health care problem and the health care costs in this country. From, 20, or from 2000 to about 2010, the cost of Medicaid doubled, as did health insurance premiums. Between 2010 and to, to today, uh, the cost of Medicaid has again doubled. Uh, and the cost of insurance continues to rise. So I think the, the notion that we just didn't get enough government the first time through, I think is just a little hard to fathom. I think that we need to go in a different direction that actually gets at the core issue, I think, when we talk about health care in the United States. It's the cost. It's the actual absence of prices and the absence of competition. So moving from a system where we have, you know, depending on which segment of the market you're talking about, whether it's insurance or hospitals or, or what have you, moving from a thousand of something to one of something sounds a lot like a monopoly, and, and monopolies don't always work in consumer interests. 
Eddie made a number of points there. Is he making sense to to you? Well, there's a surprising area where we agree that uh, the Affordable Care Act weighed many steps forward but didn't really solve the problem. The, the biggest problem that limited the value of the Affordable Care Act is that it kept the insurance industry right in the center of things. It's, it's hard for me to imagine that most of us would have the skills to negotiate our best prices on heart transplants or on bypass surgery. We can maybe use the free market to negotiate prices for optional, occasional things like LASIK surgery or something that we can do at our leisure. But when you're actually sick, where, where the vast majority of what we spend on healthcare is when you're quite sick, and at that point, the last thing you want people to have to start do is start price shopping. Instead, you should go to get the health care that is the health care you think you need. And your insurance function should disappear into the background, frankly. And that's what would happen under Medicare for All. You'd focus on your health care, and the country's economics would be managed by the system itself. Wendell, you're a former member of the insurance industry. What do you, what's your take on all of this? Well, absolutely. In fact, until a few years ago, Patrick and I would have been brethren. We would have uh, <laughs> uh, certainly been on the same side. In fact, I wrote a number of speeches for my CEO and delivered some myself that the government should get out of the way and let the free market work its magic in healthcare. I came to realize the free market doesn't work in healthcare like it does in other sectors of the economy. In fact, it often works, works just the opposite. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we, we saw so many people who were uninsured and now a, a growing number of people who were underinsured. One of the things that I wrote, uh, for example, was a white paper to try to diminish the importance of the problem of people without insurance. Uh, and I was trying to make people believe that those folks were uh, uninsured by choice. Uh, but I was obscuring a, a, a very important reality. And that was before the Affordable Care Act, when, the, when there was more of a free market, insurance companies refused to sell coverage to people because of pre-existing conditions. They were, were turning down one-third of applicants uh, because of pre-existing conditions. They were charging women more than men. They were charging older people far, far more than younger people for the exact same policy, which is why so many older people were uninsured. Do you want to comment on that, Patrick? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know that we would have been on the same side. I think that when you start talking about insurance and pharmaceuticals and, and a wide variety of other interests in the healthcare space, uh, they have been kind of in bed with government for a long, long time. Uh, and in fact, when you're talking about the insurance side of it, one of the attractive parts about the Affordable Care Act was that they were going to be guaranteed customers. And so the, the problem isn't so much that the market you know, wasn't working before or isn't working, is that it was never really allowed to work. And, and to the extent that we have government stepping in and saying, you know, we're going to make more decisions for you as, uh, you know, the public, um, I think that's just a, a, a bad option. I think that what you really want to do is make sure that people can actually shop around a little bit more. And unfortunately, we've taken health insurance to mean something very different compared to other forms of insurance. You know, when you get your car insured, usually it doesn't include oil changes. When you get your house insured, Usually, it doesn't also include cutting your lawn or, or other items that are oftentimes used, you know, done out of pocket. I think that when we talk about health insurance, a lot of times what we're really talking about is a full-blown maintenance plan. And until we start talking about insurance for those catastrophic events are, uh, that, that are going to happen to us, or, you know, there's a percentage of the public that it's going to happen to, um, we need to make sure that we're talking about insurance and not talking about maintenance plans. And I think once we start talking about that, I think we'll be talking about costs, getting those down, and making insurance and making care more affordable and accessible to more people. 
Ed Weisbart, I think I saw you roll your eyes a moment ago. Yeah. So my, my, my problem is that what you're describing is, frankly, the most expensive way we could do this. And I'm, I'm just far more prudent than that. So, for example, if you have somebody who, uh, whose kidneys stop working, um, we as a country have decided that when they need dialysis, we're going to make sure that they don't have a financial barrier to getting dialysis. And so they get onto Medicare. Uh, and that costs roughly $80,000 a year. So the country has decided we're not going to let you die. We're going to make sure that you're insured, you have Medicare for that. Well, that's roughly $80,000 a year, and I think it's just far more prudent to make sure that they have the insulin that they need. I see patients constantly who take their insulin every other day instead of twice or three times a day as they should. I see people constantly who can't afford their blood pressure pills, and it would be so much less expensive to prevent the kidney failure than it would be. So unless we're willing to walk away, that's not a good strategy. But, but Wendell, could, could we afford as a government to put everybody into this position where the government's paying all the bills? No, we can't afford not to have a, situ- a system like that. We are spending $3.5 trillion as it is on health care, and uh, at least a third of that is not going to to pay for care. It is eaten up by administrative costs, and a big chunk of it goes to enriched shareholders. Um, and just back to what we were saying a bit earlier, um, what Patrick is describing would work great if we were a country with, of very wealthy people uh, and could afford out of their own pockets to pay for care. Um, that's not catastrophic. But the median uh, savings account in this country is just $4,000. And most people are in, in insurance plans, if they have coverage, uh, that has deductibles far higher than that. We're the only developed country in the world in which people are filing for bankruptcy because of medical debt. And many of them, in fact, I think probably most of them, are insured. Uh, and the problem of competition in, in health insurance, and I was absolutely a huge advocate of that, but when you have multiple insurance companies, you have to have high administrative costs within those companies themselves, but also it requires a lot of people who work for hospitals and doctors who do nothing more day in and day out, but try to make sure that they're paid appropriately and that their patients are getting the care that they need. It actually, that's why I said it, exa- it works the exact opposite competition and the, and the free market in healthcare, because the more insurance companies you have supposedly competing with each other, none of them has uh, a very big market share. So they are uh, at a disadvantage when it comes to negotiating prices with doctors and hospitals. Uh, and the, in, in fact, that's why we have seen so much of a continued uh, rise in medical prices as well as premiums and, uh, and out-of-pocket expenses. Patrick, is it an issue that we can't afford not to do it? Uh, I, I think that uh, we can't afford to do it, frankly. And, and particularly when you start talking about just the state's finances. If we look at fiscal year 2010 versus fiscal year 2019, just look at the Medicaid portion of the state's operating budget. In 2010, the state spent about 18% of its budget on Medicaid. In fiscal year 2019, it spends 37% of its operating budget on Medicaid. And so when we talk about government spending, first of all, we have to remind ourselves that we are the government. But second of all, when we look at the programs themselves, before we even get to whether or not they're effective, which in the case of Medicaid, it has a long history, a long track record of research that shows that it is not a good program for the poor. So if you're trying to help the poor, Medicaid is a really bad option and has been ineffective for decades. But if we're just looking at the cost of it, the cost of Medicaid continues to explode because fundamentally the cost of health care in this country is not being dictated by the market. It's being dictated by government impacts, 
government influences, government mandates that require that insurance, in, in, in the case of Obamacare, uh, be purchased by people, and that that insurance required certain coverage. That is why you're seeing costs go up, is because people aren't getting a good idea of exactly what they're getting for their, their money. And until you get a, a, a clear marketplace for this health care, uh, you're always going to have cost problems. But the idea that centralizing it in government is going to somehow fix the problem, we have government health care already, and it doesn't work in terms of reducing those costs. Well, clearly there are many arguments arguments on both sides of this issue. We're going to have to take a break, however, in our discussion of it for just a moment. We'll be back and continue the subject on the subject of universal health care in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Now back to our conversation on universal health care with Wendell Potter, president of the Business Initiative on Health Policy. Dr. Ed Weisbart is chair of the Missouri Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. There with me in studio. Joining us by phone is Patrick Ishmael with the Show Me Institute. Ed, I'll come back to you. How would it work if we had a universal health care program? How would it work? I get a card. I get sick. I go to the doctor, show the card, and that's it for my responsibility? Uh, pretty much, other than paying taxes, of course. Um, but, you know, Social Security today can find you when you turn 65 and they get Social Security benefits. Well, we already get that at birth. We get signed up for that. So we get signed up for health care at birth as well. And, and right, you would, everybody in the country would be in this program. And, and every physician pretty much in the country would be in the network. Pretty much every hospital would be in the network. So if you were taking a vacation in Florida, that would be in your network. If you were in Alaska, that would be in your network. So you could go pretty much wherever you needed to. What uh, what would happen to our taxes, Wendell? Uh, would they skyrocket as a result of all of this? They would go up because we're talking about publicly financed care. But keep in mind uh, what's happening to us. And just imagine, just imagine that you're the money you're paying out of your pocket or through your paycheck that goes to an insurance company, let's consider that, call that a tax. Uh, the cost of health insurance for a family of four through the workplace is now $20,000 a year. That doesn't count the out-of-pocket cost. So we need we can have a uh, we can see this as uh, paying uh, an insurance company with a lot of our money going into the pockets of shareholders. Uh, my old job uh, in the insurance industry was to enhance shareholder value. That's job number one for these companies. Um, so uh, it can be done much more efficiently. And uh, one of the things I wanted to mention earlier, we can go back to the days before the Affordable Care Act, in which we have a minimally regulated health insurance company uh, industry. I'll kind of like describe what that would look like because it's very similar to what we had. You will have insurance companies who will have the freedom uh, to sell junk insurance and to sell policies that are uh, have minimal um, uh, coverage areas. Uh, there were my, my own company was selling policies that didn't have hospital care. And some people would say, well, that's just fine. That, that doesn't cost a lot. My, my premiums are low. But we can't predict when we're going to get a, a diagnosis of cancer or when we're going to have uh, heart issues or develop diabetes or one of our kids is going to get really sick. 
or we're going to be in an accident. What we had before was a system in which we were betting on our health year after year that we were going to remain healthy. And as we all know, uh, one day or another, we're going to need health care. And uh, most folks just don't have a lot of money. We, don't, we, we have had a lot of stagnation in wages, and a big reason for that is because of these ever-increasing uh, cost of health care and health insurance premiums. A single-payer Medicare for All system with one payer, when every, every one of us is in a pool, can bring the cost of end coverage down cost of care and coverage down. Patrick, you know, I think a lot of people listening might find these arguments quite appealing, and particularly when we look at places like Scandinavia, where universal health care is quite common and apparently working quite well. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that you can look at, uh, you know, other countries and try to figure out what is and isn't working in those countries. I think Scandinavia is an example of sometimes overblown for a lot of demographic reasons. But I, I will say that I, I would disagree with the notion that prior to the Affordable Care Act that uh, health care in this country was lightly regulated. In fact, it was heavily regulated at the state level. Uh, where you could have coverage mandates on, on those uh, insurance plans that were offered in those individual states. Not every state went that route, naturally. But I think the notion that you know, whether you're talking about certificate of need, whether you're talking about licensure, whether you're talking about uh, a wide variety of issues when you're talking about health care, you know, the Affordable Care Act was an extension of an already broken status quo, and it was one that had government at the center of our care system rather than the patient. And the idea that putting the government at the center of a patient's health care decisions is an improvement, uh, one, on, in terms of quality and in terms of uh, access, I don't think it would be. And two, in terms of cost, it is remarkably expensive, especially when you look at other countries, too. Ed, Ed go ahead. Well, first of all, um, Medicare patients fight tooth and nail to keep Medicare. So it, most Medicare patients would disagree that it's not working well. Secondly, it's ridiculous to say that it's not an efficient system. The overhead for Medicare, traditional Medicare parts A and B, the overhead is 2.2, maybe 3%. The overhead for the private insurance industry, thanks to the Affordable Care Act, is kept down to 15 to 20%. The cost trends, of course, Medicare is more expensive per person because they have the oldest and sickest Americans. But the cost trends year over year for the cost of taking care of Medicare patients is going up more slowly than the cost of taking care of patients outside of Medicare. So Medicare is really efficient at the use of our resources and really effective at that. Plus, you can go anywhere you want with Medicare, with traditional Medicare, not the privatized pseudo-Medicare, that's Medicare Advantage. Let me mention a bit, little bit about uh, uh, the regulation of, of health insurance, and Patrick is right. Until the Affordable Care Act was passed, uh, it was almost exclusively regulated at the state level. With the Affordable Care Act, there is some regulation at the federal level. Um, but the states, uh, it was often referred to in my industry as a patchwork uh, system of regulation. And it's true, some states had more regulation than others, but in many states, you had a system in which there was such little uh, regulation that uh, uh, people who were in their 40s, 50s, and 60s could sometimes see that the cost of buying a policy that would be worth buying uh, would be five or ten times as much as someone a little bit earlier, uh, 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 younger. And in some cases, um, uh, it was, it was, there was no limit to what they could charge. And, and again, they, uh, they were able to charge women uh, significantly more than women 
uh, men just by being uh, born female. Um, so my companies, my companies loved the way things used to be and really advocated for minimal uh, regulation because uh, they're able to make out like bandits. Uh, people buy th- these policies. Uh, they uh, have the uh, appearance of coverage, uh, but insurance companies pay very little out when you have a policy with minimal benefits. Uh, they, they, they love that because uh, uh, shareholders are rewarded, and when you get sick, you find out when it's often far too late uh, that the coverage was of almost no value to you. Patrick, how much of the opposition to universal health care is uh, predicated on the, the desire to ser- save the insurance industry? I know there are tens of thousands of jobs there. It's a huge industry, and that's really what is behind the notion of uh, not having this universal care. Oh, I, 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 I don't know to what extent other folks might uh, talk about you know, objecting to universal health care or Medicare for all on those grounds. I know that in my case... Uh, I, I have, in my research, seen quite a bit of, um, uh, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of health insurers, and I think they do a, a lot of harm in a lot of cases because of their interaction with government. And, and the problem here, I don't, I don't think that it is, should be about, you know, talking about stock, you know, shareholders and stocks and these businesses, because I, I get how it can be an attractive argument to say, well, you know, these people are making out like bandits, but at the end of the day, I think what the objective of our, of our policy ought to be is making sure that those who have trouble getting care, that backstop, that they're able to get it. And unfortunately, when you start talking about, you know, this kind of universal insurance regime or whether you're talking about Obamacare itself, in the case of Obamacare, <laughs> it really took it to young people, it, it imposed some of the highest costs on the young who are oftentimes the least politically powerful. And when we're talking about Medicare, why Medicare might be attractive and why people are happy with it, it's because in, in a lot of respects, it's an entitlement with a strong and voting constituency. And so when we start saying, well, we need to put more power in, in government, I get very concerned. It's not about putting power in the, you know, the hands of insurance companies who themselves oftentimes are bad actors, but the government oftentimes is also a bad actor, and putting more power into their hands at, under the pretense that it's going to reduce costs or expand service or expand access, uh, I, I think it just remains to be seen whether any of that is true, and I think history suggests that it isn't. I'd like to bring some of our listeners into the conversation. We have a number of people who would like to be a part of it. So let's do so now and bring in John calling from Webster Groves. John, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Mr. Potter, uh, first of all, you didn't grow up in Bedford Falls, did you? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, but that's a, uh, that's okay. a movie that I, uh, I, I've always liked. I grew up uh, actually in Mountain City, Tennessee, and uh, Kingsport, Tennessee. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, sir, for exposing the health insurance industry. Thank you, John. And as to the gentleman from the Show Me Institute, I suggest you go – Retake Insurance 101. It's called Spread the Risk. It's a basic insurance principle, and that is what we will accomplish if we get single payer. I will also say that I think it's immoral to subject someone's health to the profit motive of a private corporation. I trust the government when it comes to my health a heck of a lot more than I trust any insurance company. 
And you talk about death panels. We have death panels right now. They're paid by the insurance industry, and they don't give a darn about you. John, thank you so much for the call. Let's give Patrick an opportunity to respond. Sure. Well, first, I didn't reference death panels at any juncture. But yeah. second of all, like I, I understand that health care is, is a little bit different in terms of where it sits in our minds. And so when we talk about insurance, we think about health insurance differently than car insurance or homeowner's insurance. And so when we're talking about the idea of having a backstop for people to make sure that the poor and the disabled are taken care of, I think we can 100% agree that that is an appropriate role of government. The question is whether denying other people the opportunity to take care of themselves in a different way, to find ways that are less expensive to them that actually take care of their families and don't take care of the government's bottom line, the political interests of the folks in government who also would like to have the kind of power over your health that uh, currently you, you can say the private market does. You could also say that the government market, when you're talking about Medicaid and Medicare, already have. And when you're talking about Medicaid in particular, I just want to reemphasize this. The idea that Medicaid is a well-functioning program uh, is, is not supported by the facts. And unless you like the Medicaid program, um, I would not want to expand that to anybody, I would, and I wouldn't want to extend it to people who aren't already in the system. I would want that system reformed so that the poor and the disabled can actually get some value out of it and be helped by it. We have a caller who wants to get into the Medicaid part of the discussion. Shailen calls from St. Louis. Uh, Shailen, go ahead. Hi. Um, so, I wanted, yeah, I wanted to address Patrick's comment about how Medicaid uh, doesn't work for poor people. Um, I'm a social worker here in St. Louis. Um, Medicaid is a lifesaver for many of my clients. If they were not able to get health care for free, um, they wouldn't be able to go to work. And they wouldn't be able to support themselves. And sure, there are things that could be better about Medicaid. Um, I agree with that. But I, I guess I would like you to explain your comment about how Medicaid doesn't work for the poor. Shailen, thank you for the call. Patrick, sure. I- well, yeah, well, what I would cite first of all is the Oregon Health Insurance Exper- Experiment, which was conducted over the course of a number of years in Oregon, and what they had out there was an optional Medicaid program that they had to have a lottery for. So you had this essentially experiment, even though it was intended to help uh, a uh, poor population, but they didn't have enough spots for it. And so they had a group that had Medicaid and a group that didn't have Medicaid. And throughout the course of this experiment, what they found was that those who had Medicaid were not appreciably, substantively better off than those who didn't. Now, in the case of, say, uh, uh, treatment of diabetes, that is one area where they said, well, uh, they have regular contact with their doctor. And in that case, and in that narrow instance, there was a benefit. But aside from that, the only other benefit that the researchers found was that people felt better, like they just generally felt better, which is itself a value. But the question is whether or not it is a value that we as a country, whether it's not this, you know, $700 billion that we're spending on the program, whether that's sufficient to justify the 
the current Medicaid program. So, and so I, that, that's, well, that's why I said Medicaid doesn't work, and to the extent that we're talking about the networks that Medicaid, unfortunately, don't really provide for those who really need that help, I think we can have a discussion about that, too. But that is what I was referring to. And so the, the Oregon study actually is a, is a landmark study about this, and I'm, I'm sorry to hear you saw other misinformed or mis, miscommunicating the, the messages from it. The, the Oregon study showed, well, first of all, the population there was healthy, right? They only had about 4.5% that even had diabetes. So if you look at the broad population, did diabetes improve? No, they already weren't that diabetic. There already weren't that many hypertensives. But if you zero in on the subpopulations, the most out-of-control hypertensives, those with the highest cholesterol, those with the least controlled diabetes, any of those populations, you see dramatic improvements. And it was only an 18-month study, really, in a short, in a small population. And even in that tiny window, they saw dramatic improvements in all of these other health indicators, including an eliminate, almost near elimination of depression and, and, and bankruptcies. It's, it was profoundly effective. Yeah. We're going to have to wind this down in a moment, but I want to get your response to an email from Madonna. She asks, what other changes to the existing system do your guests suggest could build momentum toward an expansion of the current system? Anybody have any thoughts on that? I'd say we're, we're, we have great momentum right at the moment. We have to keep our eye on the ball and, and not let our language get distracted. We've had so much success getting Americans to want Medicare for all that what we're starting to see is that language getting subverted. So now a lot of folks in politics who are saying that they want Medicare for all are actually not talking about Medicare for all. They're talking mm -hmm. about Medicare buy-in. So Medicare for a few more people, not Medicare for all. And that's going to be far less effective but will look like it's Medicare for all mm -hmm in the language. So the most important thing to do right now is to keep our eye on the ball of what we think we need. And I might add that um, uh, another part of the momentum is coming from the business community, and it's why I have agreed to serve as president of the Business uh, Initiative for Health Policy. Uh, there's a growing number of uh, employers who are saying, we just are, have been sold a bill of goods by the insurance industry. We cannot, we're not getting value. And uh, uh, increasing numbers of, of employers are dropping coverage because of it, and their employer-based system is, is absolutely failing. It's my impression that uh, employers would not be involved in any kind of a universal health care program at all, or would they? Uh, you wouldn't be getting your coverage through there. Employers would be – it depends on whatever the, the structure is for the financing. Employers could participate in that and likely would, but they wouldn't be on the uh, – they wouldn't be forced to – provide coverage and benefits and having a big staff of people who do nothing more than uh, administer benefits for their workers. Patrick, final thought. We're going to have to wrap this up. Yeah, you know, I think if you like the health care system today, you'll really like Medicare for All. And if you're not happy with the system as it stands, you need to go a different direction. And I think that when you look at the research again, and again, looking back at the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment, it was very clear that government health care is not nearly as effective as folks think it is. It is not cost-effective. I think we can do much better than having government at the center of our health care rather than the patient. Patrick, thank you for that. And, Ed, I'm going to give you the final word because you've got an event coming up tonight. Obviously, there's much to discuss and many things we haven't gotten to, but uh, tell us what's happening tonight. Thanks. Uh, go to Facebook and look up Physicians for a National Health Program, Missouri, so the PNHPMO, Physicians for a National Health Program for Missouri uh, page. And there's four events. There's tonight. Uh, there's, there's today at 3 o'clock in Edwardsville. There's tonight at 6.30, opening at 5.30 at uh, CWA Hall near Westport Plaza. There's tomorrow at 10 a.m. It's uh, St. Louis University's Bander Center. And then there's again tomorrow night at 7 o'clock uh, here at Nine Network, a benefit for Consumers Council of Missouri, all with Wendell Potter. All right, wonderful. We will put that information 
information on our website at stlpublicradio.org. Thanks to Wendell Potter for being with us, and welcome to St. Louis. Uh, Dr. Ed Weisbart, thank you for being with us. And Patrick Ishmael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. (laughs) 